Hey folks, Ryan Kennedy here. Welcome back to the show. I'm joined today by Stan Efferding, who is both a professional bodybuilder and world record uh, power lifter. Uh, he's one of only 10 men in the world to ever total over 2,300 pounds in raw competition. Uh, and Stan holds the title as the world's strongest bodybuilder. He studied exercise science at the University of Oregon and has worked with a number of really high profile clients and just has a lot of longevity and experience and knowledge in the space of health and wellness uh, and particularly nutrition, which we're going to dive into uh, with his concepts in the vertical diet. He's a successful entrepreneur having built up uh, startups. I even saw a clip of you, Stan, on a shark tank, which is pretty cool. Um, so, so after that bio, it's pretty clear. Um, Stan knows what he's doing. And he leads by example. I mean, he practices what he preach. If you see this guy, he's freaking, he's jacked. And so with that intro, welcome to the show, Stan. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. So I really like the vertical diet you you developed and, and coined. And I'd love for you to uh, explain to the listeners some of the foundational elements of this diet. Yeah, you know, the vertical diet is really the compilation of everything I've learned throughout my career. You mentioned studying exercise science at the University of Oregon. I was a high school soccer coach. I trained high school collegiate and professional athletes for 25 years at the University of Oregon, uh, track and football players, and then numerous professional athletes. And it's kind of, uh, I've also collaborated with a lot of great athletes and coaches. I've been coached by some of the best coaches in the world. And so now as a as a coach of other athletes, I wanted to make sure they all had everything they needed. Like you said, a foundation, uh, a very comprehensive foundation of things that I wanted them to do to make sure they could become uh, the best athletes they could as successful as possible. So the vertical diet is really that, that uh, composition, that, that uh, compilation of everything from sleep to nutrition, to digestion, uh, blood testing, hormones, uh, blood pressure and blood sugar, obviously, you know, cardio and lifting and, and, and even things like compliance and grocery lists and menu plans, and just things to make implementing the program easier. And I uh, just accumulated this information uh, over, you know, decades since 1986, I was competing. And I wanted to make sure that, that all my clients had this information right out of the gate. Of course, I send them a detailed questionnaire and try and find out what they're uh, you know, personal goals and, and what uh, challenges they might have. But generally speaking, uh, the vertical diet is, uh, you know, just kind of helps everybody build a foundation. Uh, I say you can't put a three-bedroom house on a two-bedroom foundation. And so this is the foundation on, upon which once you've, uh, you know, optimized sleep and hydration and nutrition and digestion and all of those things, uh, you can build, you know, whatever you want, whether it's a, a CrossFit national champion. I've worked with many, whether it's uh, world's strongest men. I've worked with many, uh, you know, NFL football players, UFC champions. Um, it, it, it applies to all of them. And we've also made it, uh, adjusted the principles to apply to the general population, the dad bods and soccer moms who are just trying to get, uh, you know, in better shape, improve their sleep and energy and body composition, et cetera. And then longevity, you mentioned, uh, you know, I'm 54 now and I can still train at a very high level and maintain extraordinary health uh, through many, many years of uh, monitoring my 
uh, personal health and making sure that, that I pay attention to all these, these foundational principles. So, uh, you know, in short, it's highly bioavailable, micronutrient dense, easy to digest foods. Uh, micronutrients is kind of a key term there. Uh, I find that a lot of my clients and athletes uh, might be lacking uh, with digestion or micronutrient absorption. And so, uh, you know, we pay attention to all those things. And so not a lot of detail there, but generally speaking, it's, it is a ton of information that my book and my ebook are over 200 pages with more than 500 references to peer reviewed published research, videos, articles referencing, uh, you know, a lot of the, I think, the most highly respected academic professionals in the industry. And it's co-authored by a registered dietitian with a PhD. So uh, I've worked hard to make sure the information is, uh, is uh, scientifically sound. Yeah, I love this whole vertical lifestyle because it, it's all interconnected. You know, a lot of people get hung up on one aspect of, you know, training or nutrition, but really in the big scheme of things, you got to look at all these different lifestyle variables that all intertwine with each other. And the one, uh, one of the main focuses, like you mentioned, is the digestion component. And this is huge. I mean, I work with so many people in my practice. I'd say upwards of 90% of people that come to me have some degree of digestive distress, you know, bloating, fatigue after meals, uh, you know, loose stool, uh, all sorts of gas and other types of fermentation going on in the gut. And, you know, a lot of people think like, oh, it, it must be, you know, sugar or dairy or, you know, gluten in the wheat. Um, but, you know, they don't really tie it back to some of these quote unquote ultra healthy vegetables being at the root cause of their digestive distress. And I want you to touch on this because I know you've, uh, you, you really go into this with your vertical diet of looking at a lot of these FODMAP foods and these fermentable compounds uh, that can really cause a lot of GI distress. Yeah, you're right. It is comprehensive. Even losing significant sleep can have uh, an impact on your insulin sensitivity. Uh, the co-author of my book did his master's thesis on IGF-1 and you see even after one night of four hours of sleep or four, five hours of sleep, or even a full night's sleep with apnea is, uh, is not adequate sleep. And that can impact your insulin sensitivity and, and have a you know, significant impact on your postprandial glycemia or the amount of you know, your blood sugar response to eating. Also, chronic dieting, just being in a calorie deficit uh, for too long can have an impact on your gut microbiome and the quality of your digestion. And then beyond that, uh, you mentioned things like gastric reflux. People will be taking antacid medication and not appreciate that you need acid to break down proteins and to absorb minerals. So they become deficient in both as a result of constantly taking either prescription or over-the-counter, you know, Tums or something like that. So we do, uh, you know, right out of the gate, ask those kinds of questions, um, how their digestion is. If they've visited a gastroenterologist and been diagnosed with a particular eating uh, or digestion problem, diverticulosis, IBS, IBD, uh, then, you know, those interventions are, are commonly uh, uh, starting with an elimination diet. And that is the most often how uh, digestive problems are, uh, you know, the, the pathway to resolving them. And the most studied elimination diet is the FODMAP diet from Monash University out of Australia, fermentable oligo dye monosaccharides and polyols. Those foods uh, have, through their research, uh, been recognized to cause a lot of, can cause excessive gas and bloating and aggravate people with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. And there's a 60 to 80% resolution of symptoms for people who 
use the low FODMAP menu. And so, uh, you know, we commonly will start with that as an, as an elimination diet and then reintroduce foods, um, allowing them to, to give us, you know, their feedback as to how they respond. And I have to say that, that it's not a good food, bad food conversation. It's, uh, it's individualistic. Not everybody suffers from these problems. Some people are like garbage disposals. They can eat anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's dose dependent. You know, how much of these foods you eat can matter. And the, the FODMAP menu even specifies a third cup of this up to a half a cup of that. They're very specific. And there's over a hundred food, food items on the low FODMAP menu. So it's not onerously restrictive. Um, so in addition to the individualistic nature and the, the cumulative nature, um, I mentioned it was uh, uh, dose dependent. It can be cumulative, meaning uh, kind of like filling a bucket. If it's something like sugar alcohols or histamines, uh, you might be able to tolerate a particular amount of them in the morning, but by evening they've, they've overflowed your bucket and then you'll start to see the, the, the response. Um, and uh, how they're prepared matters. Some cruciferous vegetables can be cooked thoroughly enough so that they're soft to where enough of the cellulose fiber will be broken down uh, and have a less of an impact on your large bowel in terms of uh, uh, you know creating methane from being broken down and, and causing uncomfortable gas and bloating. And gas per se is not unhealthy. It's, uh, it might be more unhealthy for people around you than yourself. <laughs> But there are, you know, there's levels to this. And if, if it's something that's bothering people, uh, then, you know, we can offer some suggestions in those low FODMAP foods. Uh, you know, we have a list of those to be cautious of. And, uh, you know, I mentioned sugar alcohols and, of course, cruciferous vegetables and things like garlic and onions. Uh, not bad foods per se, but how much of them you eat, how they're prepared and how you tolerate them can make a big difference in uh, your dietary habits and how you respond. Yeah, that's the key thing is just that bio-individuality. I remember learning about this many years back and I thought, man, all these foods are healthy foods. How could they be so problematic? But I saw firsthand when I cut uh, onions and garlic were two of the biggest ones yes. for me personally. I cut those out of my diet, which was challenging because they're used in virtually everything, you know, just yes. from because they bring great flavor uh, and they do yeah. have a lot of healthy qualities. But when I cut those out of my diet, I went from getting, you know, a lot, passing a lot of gas in the evenings uh, after dinner to none at all, just from those yeah. two foods uh, were really causing a lot of fermentation for my body. And I've seen it be the case time and time again. And like you said, it is kind of a spectrum, you know, sometimes people can handle a certain volume of these foods, but you go over that, you cross that line and then you do get a lot of issues with that fermentation and, you know, the buildup of, uh, of gas in the, in the stomach, which is not, uh, not pleasant, especially like you said, for people around you. Uh, if you're if you're sitting indoors, it's not not an ideal scenario. Indeed, indeed. Two of the big concerns when using a, a, a an elimination diet, uh, just the main concerns, um, would be uh, uh, an insufficient amount of micronutrients necessary to thrive: magnesium, potassium. Uh, even sodium, if you're not salting your food and you're eating quote unquote healthy, you're not eating fast food, you're not eating a lot of packaged food. Um, so micronutrients is a concern. And in particular, uh, prebiotics and probiotics. Um, oftentimes, a lot of the prebiotic foods are high FODMAP foods because they're intended to survive the small bowel mm -hmm. and make it to the large bowel to feed your gut microbiome, the flora in there. And, and 
that's not, the food isn't digested, it's fermented. It's broken down by bacteria and creates methane as a, uh, you know, as part of the breakdown process. And that's actually healthy for that gut flora. I just have to be careful of the dose and uh, try and make sure you get some, uh, uh, you know, soluble fibers. We include potatoes for that reason. They're a very good prebiotic and they're also loaded with potassium twice as much as a banana. Um, and we include some yogurt. And like you mentioned, a lot of people avoid dairy because they've heard it's bad for them. Uh, we could spend an entire hour on, on all the great qualities of dairy and how it's unnecessary to avoid it entirely depending on your lactose, uh, the amount of lactase enzyme. And so, you know, we use like a Greek yogurt, it's loaded with probiotics. Uh, we're seeing, if you look at some of the research by uh, Gabrielle Fandero, vitamin PhD from RP Strength and, and now examine.com, uh, we're seeing that not all probiotics, not all fermented foods are the same. Things like kimchi and kombucha might not be providing the uh, digestive benefits that we presumed they would, whereas dairy does. And so different types of fermented foods have now been tested um, to show that some have, you know, such as fermented dairy, cheese, yogurt, uh, does have a digestive benefit, whereas uh, we, we can't see much research to suggest that things like kimchi and uh, kombucha and, um, and even, uh, uh, what am I thinking, sauerkraut, yeah. aren't, don't, don't really provide that much benefit. One of the big challenges I have with those kinds of things, the probiotics, is that people, I don't know how to explain this best, but they'll eat something they shouldn't eat. And then want to eat some probiotics to, to help yeah. that situation. And it doesn't help. It's kind of like, hey, my knee hurts. I'm going to squat, but then I'm going to put some electric stem on it after. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's the same thing with the gut. You really have to avoid the problem, uh, eliminate the source first and foremost. You can't throw something down after it, uh, thinking that it's going to cure. Uh, you know, your, whatever your trigger is, whatever the source of your problem is. And that's when I think people use those types of foods as some sort of crutch or supposed intervention or medication, if I can say that, uh, to help fix their gut when really, if they would just find, uh, take the time to find, and it could be hard to do, um, the, uh, their trigger, the source of the problem, the food that's causing the issue, which oftentimes it's many foods, uh, the low FODMAP diet is just one of the, I think one of the best, um, what would you say, kind of, kind of the, the best guide that we currently have, the most successfully tested on the most people to offer uh, benefits. Uh, and so we, we do recommend that kind of out of the gate, but include some prebiotics, include some yogurt. Uh, we're, we're cautious about not over restricting. And that's kind of the foundation of, the, of, the, uh, of those, those foods. That's why we put them in there. Yeah, I find that's the case oftentimes with people is rather than seeking the root cause that's, you know, creating the issue for them, they yeah. seek some band-aid solution. And in our, you know, in kind of the natural health space, rather than finding what, you know, foods are causing their inflammation, they're like, oh, I'll just take this curcumin supplement and it'll kind of help, but not really. And, right. you know, I suppose it's better than like NSAIDs or going a, a synthetic kind of pharmaceutical route. Right. But in the big scheme of things, you got to look at what's causing the inflammation in the first place. Your body doesn't have some curcumin deficiency. You know, no. it's not a necessary nutrient for human health. So uh, I, I see that type of thing all the time. And I'm, I'm glad you touched on the, um, the fermented foods topic because I've seen similar things in that the lacto-fermented 
things such as kefir and, and yogurts and things of that nature, dudes tend to provide more benefits. Uh, and, and the fermentation process seems to make the dairy um, a little bit easier to digest for people who do have yes. uh, issues with lactose and some of these other dairy proteins. Um, you know, I find the raw dairy is a big difference. Uh, I don't know. It's, it, it varies state by state where it's available. I'm in California where it's, it's legal to sell raw, uh, unpasteurized, non-homogenized dairy. And there you don't have all the, you, you have more of those live enzymes. And so a lot of the dairy will have some of that lactase enzyme in there to mm -hmm. help break down the lactose. But when you pasteurize the shit out of it with all the processed milk uh, and cheeses and things like that, kind of wipes that out of the equation. So it makes your body have to pick up the slack, so to say. Um, so I'll, I'll find that with a lot of people, myself included, if I just have some pasteurized uh, dairy, uh, I'm not doing so hot. But if I have like a raw grass-fed dairy product, whether it be a, a milk or a cheese, I feel great. You know, I don't have yeah. the same issues. Let me let me uh, load in, in, jump on that as well, and say that that sometimes if you haven't had dairy in a while, your your lactase enzyme will decrease, and then when you eat dairy, you will have insufficient amount of lactase. So sometimes you'll have to titrate the dose to start with a couple ounces for a yeah. few days until that uh, your lactase enzyme accumulates. And also, like you mentioned, the fermented dairies, the cheeses and the, uh, the yogurts have less lactose in them. And so they're more tolerable. And so we, we titrate those with our clients. And, you know, the big reason is because we're seeing in the literature, we see it in epidemiology in particular, that the, the, the populations that consume the most dairy have the longest, uh, have the best health. They have uh, the lowest all-cause mortality, the lowest heart disease in comparison to those who consume very little dairy. And the proteins uh, are, are very valuable, particularly for adolescents and teenagers. Um, the protein in, in milk seems to have a, an especially, uh, I wanna say anabolic effect, but we do see a better response uh, to hypertrophy and strength gains in teenagers that are consuming more dairy. And some speculation is that because of its, uh, its stimulatory effect on IGF-1. Yeah. And so that can, can be a benefit. Uh, but, you know, we, we look for a variety of proteins. I'm, you know, I'm not exclusively a, uh, like I, I certainly promote red meat in the diet. I promote 30% protein as a percentage of total calories, which we now just recently saw a study suggesting that that is superior to even the Mediterranean diets in terms of cardiovascular disease and insulin resistance, uh, because the Mediterranean diet is about 20% protein. So it seems that protein is, is probably more predictive of long-term health uh, than, and then secondarily would be, you know, the rest, the fruits and vegetables and, and that. Uh, and I think that we kind of get that turned around, we get that upside down and we lead with fruits and vegetables and sometimes compromise our protein intake. And so, you know, I promote red meat, uh, certainly whole eggs. We've seen research that where we compare egg whites and whole eggs uh, equating for calories and protein intake and, and two groups and one with the whole eggs will have a significantly better hypertrophy and strength response. Um, there was some speculation it was the micronutrients, possibly the, uh, the biotin or, or choline or others, but now it seems to be cholesterol. They seem to be thinking that the increased cholesterol uh, has a positive effect on hypertrophy and strength training outcomes. And we're seeing it in numerous studies. Mental Henselman's covered this with a, a host of studies uh, mo most recently. So. Uh, I have a, uh, a broad range. I want them to get about a gram of protein per pound of body weight or pound of gold or lean weight if they're significantly overweight. 
and then use, utilize numerous sources. Even with my kids, I wanted to get a gram of protein per pound of body weight from a variety of animal sources, uh, along with the fruits and vegetables where I can get them in there. But I, I lead with the most micronutrient dense, highly bioavailable, protein rich foods. And that's some red meat, much higher in iron, B12 and zinc and creatine and carnitine than chicken uh, and better fatty acid you know, profile, omega-6 to omega-3. Uh, obviously some yogurt daily and uh, some whole eggs daily. And then for my, uh, you know, for my omega threes, I'm, I'm taking in two servings of, uh, of wild salmon twice a week. And that gives you about all the omega threes that's ever been tested to give you a health benefit aside from maybe a prescription uh, EPA study on, uh, you know, pharmaceutical grade. Uh, but aside from that, in terms of food, um, we throw in two servings of salmon a week and that satisfies your omega threes. So that's kind of the how I round out proteins and from the sources that I use. So I'm not, I'm not exclusively red meat. I don't eschew chicken or pork. If you choose to consume it, uh, I just don't think it should be red meat should be excluded. And I think it should be preferentially consumed because of its superior micronutrient density. Yeah. We really see eye to eye there, Stan. And I'm just not a huge fan of the fatty acid um, profile of chicken and pork with the higher yeah. levels of linoleic acid compared to the uh, fatty acid profile of red meat, where you have a much higher uh, proportion of stearic acid, which just seems to confer a lot more benefits um, from a yeah. metabolic health standpoint. And then, like you said, the micronutrient um, density in grass-fed beef or lamb or bison, it just blows these white meats like chicken and turkey yeah. out of the water, man. It's and, and it's, you know, when people hear me say that oftentimes, if they've been kind of uh, confused with a lot of the mainstream uh, media recommendations they're like are you kidding me telling me a steak is healthier than a chicken breast i'm like 100 percent yes 100 percent yes, <laughs> 100%, yes. Uh, but I, and I it's like... even better for the environment if you want to make that argument because absolutely chickens and pigs are monogastric animals they have to eat human food yep whereas uh cows because they're ruminant animals they can eat in in, in arable land that you can't plant crops on and they can eat food that we can't eat and convert it into a, a nutrient-dense meat source for us. Yep, it really is one of the keys. Uh, regeneratively, regeneratively and holistically managed uh, ruminants are really the key for reversing climate change despite you know, popular beliefs. Uh, on the topic of protein though, Stan, with your background in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, do you find that there's any additional benefit with muscle protein synthesis and recovery and overall strength gains and, and hypertrophy with exceeding that one gram per pound of body weight, because I've always been under the, you know, based on the reading I've done, it, it doesn't appear to be, but there's so many uh, anecdotal stories in that, in that space. I know you're deep in that world. So when yep. you're working with a professional uh, power lifter or, or a bodybuilder, do you have them exceed that uh, protein? I'm glad you you made that distinction between the literature and the anecdotes, uh, because obviously, you know, when I was coming up in the sport, having started competing in 86, uh, the internet didn't exist and it was all trial and error and anecdotes at that time. And, uh, you know, we, we put down about two grams of protein per pound of body weight pretty regularly. Uh, and the, the research doesn't support that as being any additional benefit. I will say this, uh, there is some research uh, that would suggest that in a calorie deficit, like dieting for a bodybuilding show, mm -hmm. it may be wise, not only for the satiety benefit, but um, for the lean mass retention, potentially to go up to like 1.2 grams per pound 
uh, you, you get much beyond that. I, I just don't see that there's much support for it. When you're in a calorie surplus, you have to remember uh, that, that carbohydrates in particular are protein sparing. And so if I've got someone who's trying to gain weight and they're having a hard time eating enough calories in a day, the most satiating food with the highest thermic effect of, of food is protein. And so I'll bring that down to 0.8 or 0.7 grams per pound and won't see any loss in, in, in their potential gains because they're in a surplus. And a lot of that surplus is carbohydrates. And it's just easier to consume more of those calories and be hungry again faster. And so that, those are the strategies that I use. Dieting for a bodybuilding show, I'll go to 1.2. A lot of it's for the satiety benefit. Uh, bodybuilding figure, physique, bikini, I'm, I'm referring to the whole industry there. And then uh, gaining weight, I go down to 0.8, simply because it might be hard to maintain a surplus and the other calories are easier to consume more of and have a lower thermic effect of food and uh, lower satiety effect. So that, that's what my recommendations are currently. Makes total sense. What, on the topic of satiety, one of the things I've heard you share that I found fascinating, and I, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I, I think I recall you saying as I was doing some research on you, that oranges are one of the highest satiety foods. Yeah, can you, can you, you could Google. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it, there are some studies that are done where they have a satiety index and they feed groups of people particular foods and then they ask them, uh, you know, two hours, three hours, four hours later, how full they are. And the foods that are highest on the satiety index, uh, proteins, of course, high protein foods are way up there. Yeah. Uh, High protein solid foods, not protein shakes. It's not protein itself. It seems to have something to do with the food. And I've also found that uh, this is another strategy I use. I'll get back to the original question shortly, but um, another strategy that I use with people that are trying to lose weight is I have them cut and chew steak, whole steak. And people are trying to gain because it's more satiating, just mechanically speaking. It takes you longer to eat it. It fills up, kind of fills up more space, takes a little longer to digest. Yep. People are trying to gain weight. I'll use a ground bison or a ground beef because it's easier to consume more of it faster and it's got more surface area. And so you're hungry again sooner. And I blend it with rice and bone broth so that it's just mechanically speaking. Again, uh, it's just more saliva and you're just able to, to consume it faster. And I might even sprinkle a little dextrose on their rice for the same reason. More saliva, more amylase, and maybe even more pancreatic amylase to help break down the starch. So I don't use the dextrose to drive calories necessarily but just to stimulate the mechanisms in the body that can help uh, consume more food mechanically. And then uh, also chemically in terms of the amylase to break it down and the starch better. So uh, how did I get lost? Back to the original question. Yeah. What was that again? Remind me. Or, or, oranges being high satiety food, <laughs> okay. which was shocking satiety. to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing that I do. People who are dieting, I have them eat boiled potatoes and whole oranges because they're very high on the satiety index, two of the highest foods if you, if you Google the indexes. And people who are gaining weight, I have them drink small amounts of orange juice and eat white rice with dextrose as mentioned. And those are strategies that seem to be very effective. The, the orange juice thing, I talked about this over four years ago on my uh, seminar that I did in Iceland. It's got almost 7 million views now. Uh, and people, I mean, a lot of folks responded and thought it was bro science, but now we're seeing a lot of literature suggesting that fructose can actually increase body temperature, uh, recommending that people consume both 
dextrose and fructose for uh, faster absorption and, and better digestion uh, for training bouts, particularly um, uh, you know lengthy endurance events, etc. But I just found first anecdotally and then testimonial from my clients, and then I did post some research that just a, a few ounces of OJ. I'm not talking about an eight or ten ounce glass. Again, I'm not using it to drive calories. I'm just using it to stimulate the liver. Uh, and to increase body temperature, we find that T4 converts to T3 in the liver, so there might even be some, uh, some thyroid benefit. Uh, I've just seen it in blood tests too. I've seen AST, ALT come down, I've seen appetite go up, thyroid function improve. Of course, I was usually putting in some sort of iodine, I'd usually switch to iodized salt or a little cranberry juice to stimulate thyroid function, uh, especially in dieters uh, getting ready for shows because they tend to have some slow thyroid function uh, from the, you know, the, the diet and the lack of sleep and the overtraining and all of those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, those are all little, little methods, uh, little things that I think cumulatively they add up to provide some significant benefits for clients, depending on whether, you know, they're trying to gain weight or lose weight. And uh, I just found that to be interesting in blood tests. People would come to me, you know, I'm, I'm in a business, bodybuilding and powerlifting, uh, where there's a lot of guys using performance enhancing drugs. And so I often get blood tests that, uh, that have, you know, abnormal ranges of a lot of different things, um, you know, thick blood, high liver and kidney markers, creatinine, AST, ALT, things like that. And uh, we can sometimes use um, nutritional interventions to help mitigate some of those problems. And so we, wherever possible, we do that. Makes sense. Ah, I just, uh, I'm glad that you kind of went into detail about the, the survey, uh, I guess, with the subjective measurements on the studies of satiety, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't have guessed, you know, uh, even potatoes, although they are kind of known to help be a real good filler, uh, just because yeah. the lack of protein, lack of fat, easily and quickly digestible uh, starch, it seems like they'd be lower on that scale. Same, same with fruit, obviously. Um, yeah. But, I think the resistant starch, the soluble okay. fiber in them is part yeah. of the is part of the thing. Plus, you remember it's not it's not French fries and it's not potato chips. It's yeah, completely potatoes. different animal. Yeah. <laughs> on the topic yeah. of French fries, one thing I I do want to touch on because I know you're a big uh, uh, big proponent of people cutting out uh, omega six vegetable oils. Yeah. Um, so so what are some of your favorite uh, dietary fat sources for for cooking and just for general uh, in in someone's nutrition plan? Well, I'll say this, because I have proteins at 30 plus percent of the total diet, a lean protein, like a top sirloin steak or a, an egg, you might even have to do an egg, egg white blend. Usually um, you'll get all of your fats out of the protein sources themselves. And so I don't need to add fats to meet the, my recommendations for fats. Fats are important. You know, it's obviously for AD, E, and K and every cell in the body has a lipid bilayer and you need to a fatty, you know, fats to help digest and move nutrients throughout the body. Uh, but I, so I keep fats in at a minimum of 25% of total calories. Once I get below that, I start to see hormonal issues um, uh, and just kind of general well-being. unless it's the last 30 days before, a, you know, a physique figure bikini competition. And then I'll actually drop fats. I keep carbs in because they, they drive the performance, the, mm -hmm. the training, you know, I have to maintain that stimulus to hold on the muscle tissue. So beyond that, I do get two servings of fatty fish a week to get my omega-3s. And then, um, uh, you know, I just don't see any need to add additional fats. Maybe a little bit of olive oil uh, if somebody chooses to cook in that. 
um, but I'm not adding a lot of fats. I, I don't toss in, you know, butter bombs or uh, bacon or uh, my, I use lean sources of meats. Otherwise you, you'll quickly, your fats will start to climb too high and uh, either Im impair the, your ability to get enough protein in or crowd out the carbohydrates that I think are most beneficial for people's anaerobic training, which I lead with even for the general population, because I think weightlifting is more important than even cardio itself. I think weightlifting is cardio. If you're doing it with enough intensity to get a result, obviously your, your cardiovascular fitness is going to improve. You're going to be breathing pretty hard at the end of a set that's taken to within or up or to a failure. And about all the cardio I really recommend, unless somebody has a specific demand for that in their sport or performance or a desire for that in their preferred exercise plan, uh, is the three 10 minute walks a day, which has a whole bevy of, of benefits for blood sugars and digestion and blood pressure benefits and, and cardiovascular fitness. And plus it's sustainable. If I give a client a 40 minute treadmill session uh, as a prescription for weight loss, not only is it not terribly effective, we're knowing that we're seeing that now in all the literature, more exercise is not equal more weight loss. Uh, exercise's main benefit is really as weight loss maintenance as an appetite, uh, as a satiety benefit, just to get your six to 8,000 steps a day. Uh, but as for losing weight, it's not terribly effective and it's not very sustainable. Nobody's going to do that. The barriers to entry are, are too great. You know, who, what busy professional with kids is going to come home, change, get in the car, drive to the gym, do 40 minutes of treadmill. It's just not going to happen. So the three 10 minute walks is something you can do anytime, anywhere uh, that's sustainable as part of a normal lifestyle to take your kids to school, walk after dinner, put a little recumbent bike in your living room when you have poor weather and, and just knock out you know, 10 minutes of little, little intervals, little 45 second spins um, in front of the TV and do that, you know, for 10 minutes. Uh, we've seen it, 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 it improves, uh, it prevents or reverses type two diabetes at twice the rate of metformin, which is the number one prescribed uh, type two diabetes drug in the world. It's twice as effective, just taking a 10 minute walk within 30 minutes to an hour of eating, they call postprandial glycemia is blunted by up to 30%. So your blood sugar spike is lower and the duration of blood sugar elevation in the bloodstream is shorter. So the uh, insulin area under the curve is less. And insulin seems to be the driver of most of these metabolic diseases, the fatty liver, high blood pressure, all of those things. I'm really glad you touched on that because I've been preaching this for years and years and just can't believe people are still uh, exerting so much of their willpower to go run steady state on a treadmill or on an elliptical trainer it, when they hate it it's it's grueling and they have this preconceived notion that if it's not challenging it's not going to get them the results or the benefit but it's it's just crazy to think that way because going on a walk like you mentioned all these benefits and it's freaking enjoyable you know go for a walk on the out yeah. in the sunshine and you could stack it with you know phone calls or you know listening to an audiobook or a podcast or chatting with a friend i mean there's so many ways to build this in as part of things that you're already doing you know you already have some of these calls scheduled it's like why sit inside under artificial junk lights on your cell phone if you could go for a walk and be out in fresh air and natural sunlight and get those get some movement in which is only going to help with your cognitive performance uh, and energy levels so yeah, that's, that's a huge thing. And then on the resistance training front, I want to dive there a little bit, because obviously you yep. have extensive background in this, and I'm a huge fan of weight, weight training. I, I do more hypertrophy work myself than the, the typical powerlifting uh, strength mm -hmm. stuff. Um, mm -hmm. 
but just wanted to hear your thoughts, you know, on, on typical volume you, you recommend for general population. I know it's going to be vastly different for, for a professional yeah. bodybuilder, but, um, you know, I want you to share your, your philosophy because I know you and I agree in that it doesn't take that much. It really doesn't. I've always said it's, it's twice as hard to gain, half as hard to maintain. And I, I, if someone's dieting in particular, you, you have to uh, do some sort of resistance training to hold on to your muscle tissue or you'll lose as much muscle as fat. Um, and then when you gain the weight back, which tends to happen faster than you lose it, you'll gain more fat than muscle. And that's that whole yo-yo thing where yeah. eventually your body composition changes to the point where you're skinny fat. Now you're, you're suffering from, you know, metabolic adaptations, kind of the biggest loser problem. They gained all their weight back, but their basal metabolic rate was still significantly lower than when they started because they had lost a ton of muscle and gained back a lot of fat. And so, uh, and fat just doesn't require as many calories for, for, uh, uh, for your basal metabolic rate or for your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, when you are moving, the muscles will burn more calories. So uh, it doesn't take a lot. And this is right out of Brad Schoenfeld's hypertrophy book, uh, which is really great read and, and easy to read. He, he does, he summarizes every chapter with takeaways. And uh, there's a chart that Brett Contreras um, uh, did. He's, uh, he's the glute guy. He's PhD in exercise phys that I included in my uh, vertical diet ebook on my website and credit him for it as well. Um, but here's, here's a rundown, quick rundown. He'd like to train every body part twice a week. And by that, I mean a push, a pull and a leg. So any pushing movement, a push up is going to work your chest, shoulders and triceps. So you could just do a set of push ups. Uh, any pulling movement, it could be a row or a chin up is going to work your back and biceps. So now we've got push ups and chin ups. And then any quad exercise, a squat, a leg press, a leg extension, uh, even uh, going up walking stairs. <clears throat> Sorry, did I got you back there? All good. Okay, e even walking stairs, something where you're using your leg to you know, propel uh, a large mass through some range of motion. Uh, even my 91 year old dad, I got him one of those adjustable chairs you know, to get up and out of. I'll have him adjust it almost all the way up and I'll have him stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down through a partial range of motion because he can't do a full squat at his age. And uh, I got him a little Reebok step and he can hold on to a, a railing and uh, just step up on it and step down and step up and step down. And that, that is sufficient. Um, or, or even, um, sorry, lost again. Or even uh, uh, just holding, like I'll, in my garage, I have a little gym set up and I set a deadlift bar up pretty high up on the pins. So my dad can just reach down to about his thighs and he only has to move the bar about five or six inches. Just holding the weight itself is enough, uh, we call axial loading, to, uh, to, to delay uh, you know, the loss of bone mass, which is a pretty you know, common problem as, with aging. Uh, as well as assist with sarcopenia, the loss of muscle tissue, uh, which is a big problem we see with, you know, like astronauts when, they're, when, they, uh, when they get on and, and, and go to the moon, they lose a lot of muscle tissue just because of the lack of gravity. They have to do resistance training. Mm -hmm. And that often happens as people age, they just stop lifting weights. Twice a week, work every body part. Uh, about 10 sets is kind of a minimum effective volume. So five sets of push-ups, five sets of chin-ups, five sets of legs twice a week, gets your 10 sets a week. 
That's it. Doesn't take very long. And you can even superset the push up in the chin up uh, to save more time. Uh, here's one of the kickers. You'd like to work within a couple reps of failure. So if you do 10 push ups, but you could have done 20, probably not an effective stimulus. That's exercise, not training enough, significantly enough to, to trigger the muscles uh, to give them an adequate stimulus to grow. Those are probably the big three in terms of frequency, volume, and intensity. And if I can just get people to participate in, you know, 30 minutes twice a week under those conditions, then I think that they could retain and even gain muscle under that criterion. And there's some other smaller things, this is range of motion, um, the, the pace of the rep, but those are much smaller issues, just kind of getting that done. And a lot of that could be done in the garage, uh, but you know, I, I obviously love to go to the gym. As we discussed with the treadmill thing, that most people don't. Uh, that's what gets sacrificed first when they you know, get to, when they're late home from work or the kids need to, to shuttle somewhere real quickly. Um, so you know, that's my recommendation. I think that anybody can and should do that uh, as a priority over even the cardio. That would 100%. be first. Yeah, I yep. think the, the focus really needs to switch from being overly fat to being under muscled because muscle yeah. is just it's the key organ that unlocks the whole equation, you know, in terms of our metabolic currency, in terms of aging and longevity, in terms of our endocrine system. It's so closely tied to all these other systems in the body. And when you don't have enough muscle, losing weight, maintaining a healthy weight, being functionally, uh, physically fit, you know, even just taking your groceries in or putting a suitcase up on the airplane or picking up your, your yep. kid or whatever it might be, you start to really uh, increase your chances for all sorts of age related uh, chronic issues, you know, chronic illnesses and chronic conditions. And so I think that if, you know, someone has one hour a week to exercise, it should absolutely be, you know, two 30 minute strength training sessions or three 20 minute resistance training sessions at, over any cardio hands. Down. Yeah. It is. It's the organ of longevity. I think others have certainly said that long before I did. It's also a, a sink for glucose. It's the number one mechanism that you have to absorb blood sugars from the bloodstream in the absence of the need of insulin, as long as you're working it. it uh, that's another thing it's, I mentioned in terms of the 10-minute walk after meals. It's your muscles from that walking that, or recumbent bike or whatever it is you're able to do after meals that's soaking up the blood sugars without the need of insulin being released. So those are huge. Also, you know, I was interesting. I was at Pat Davidson's seminar. Uh, he's fantastic. I've been watching a lot of his stuff recently, along with Jordan Shallow, the muscle doc. And they were both doing a seminar in Miami a few weeks ago. And I went down and watched. And he said something really interesting because the, the, the biggest predictor of, of longevity is VO2 max. The second predictor is strength, lean muscle mass. But the reason that the lean muscle mass might even be more important is because your VO2 max is dependent upon the amount of muscle that you have and can move. And so it's a really interesting, uh, you know, if, if somebody with a lot of sarcopenia uh, who has very little muscle mass tries to move around, it's unlikely they're going to, their heart rates are going to elevate to the point uh, to give them a really a, a significant cardiovascular benefit in the absence of enough muscle demanding the oxygen. Yeah, so, it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, as we wrap stuff up here, here, Stan, I want to touch on one more big topic because, you know, all the great 
nutrition and exercise and general health stuff we've shared doesn't really help people if they don't apply it. And I know a large body of your work is all about compliance, all right? Because that's really yeah. the name of the game. And so can you share some tips and tricks and just common behaviors that you've found particularly effective for driving sustainability and compliance when someone's making changes to their lifestyle? Yeah, and this has been studied extensively. We have both uh, a study, uh, the Weight Control Registry, which looks at successful dieters, uh, over 10,000 dieters who have lost over 60 pounds and kept it off for more than five years. Uh, the number one behavior uh, that they all uh, engage in, 98% of them went on a diet. They have a plan. Any diet doesn't matter. A plan is better than no plan. You, you have to, this idea of intuitively, you know, winging it, uh, that doesn't work for your checkbook and your bank account. It doesn't work for dieting either. I'm not saying you have to count calories necessarily, but if you haven't learned portion control, and that may take at least initially some sort of measurement uh, process, or at least understanding how many calories are in the foods that you're eating. Uh, one of the biggest problems with dieting is that we underestimate our calorie intake by up to 50%. And so do restaurants and so do labels are off by 20% and registered dietitians are off by 20%. We overconsume portion sizes and then just not knowing how many calories are in certain foods that we're eating. If they're cooked in oils, they're invisible to you, but they might add 200 calories to, to that one plate and that can add up significantly. So 98% go on a diet. So you have to have a plan. 78% uh, of those people ate breakfast. And that's you know pretty important because now we're trying to convince people they have to intermittent fast or they have to go keto to lose weight. And the fact is you don't, and most successful people don't. Uh, it's certainly a viable option if it works for you. Uh, we'd like to leave open the opportunity for people to find uh, whatever diet works best for them. I don't want to nocebo people into thinking that some certain diet's the only one that works. And then when it doesn't work for them, they completely give up. <laughs> I tried keto. It didn't work. So I'm giving up entirely. Uh, there's many options, many paths to the same destination, I say. We have to find the best one that works for you. So specifically, when you talk about what kinds of behaviors uh, are most successful, uh, Number one is meal prepping. Number one, by far outweighs all the others combined. And this is what we've known in the bodybuilding figure physique bikini industry for decades. Those people are very good at that. They carry around their little Tupperwares as nauseating as it may seem. <laughs> they, they're successful because yeah. they weigh and measure all their food and they only eat what they're supposed to eat for the day. I use the thermos. I've, I've been, this thing that was life-changing for me. I get a little 24 ounce thermos off of Amazon, they're $20. And I put a hot meal in there because I've ran through more airports in my time with a cold Tupperware meal that I wasn't about to eat, looking, paying the lady at Starbucks $2 to heat it up for me or, you know, <laughs> I travel a lot and I've had more food rot in those stupid containers over the years or just become unedible for age. Um, so I use thermos now and they'll, the meals stay hot for 10 or 12 hours. I take them with me everywhere I go and I'm, I'm perfectly satisfied to eat exactly what I want in the quantities that I want the types of food that feel good on me. So I don't have to do room service or, you know, go through the airport trying to find something that's high in protein and low in fat. So you're uh, talking about my, like a hydro flask type thermos. Yeah. Just a little double insulated oh, wow. steel. Yeah. Yeah. They're amazing. Yeah. And what, give and me, I, give I, us some examples of what you would, cause I could obviously think of like soups and stews and things like that would work in there, but yeah, you what could put things? anything in there. I've put steak and eggs in there and, and oh, some wow. rice. I like to make my bone, my uh, monster mash. I mix up 
uh, bison with a, a little scrambled egg and a little bit of bone broth and some rice. And I stir all that up into a into a mash, I call it, you know, I think my grandpa called it shit on a shingle or most people's <laughs> grandpas did. <laughs> and I'll put that in there, but you could put anything in there. I, I have a meal prep company. We deliver nationwide. We make low FODMAP meals. They're high in protein and low in fat. And I get a steak and potato and, I, and vegetables, got carrots and squash and zucchini. And uh, I'll heat that up. And then I, I get a, this is one important thing. It's going to cost you an extra dollar. You got to get one of those uh, funnels, like a jarring funnel to put into the thermos so that you can pour all your food in there really easily. <laughs> I actually travel with mine because I'll take, I'll take, you know, uh, like eight frozen meals with me when I'm gone for the weekend, I'll just put them in my checked luggage or on my, even in my carry on. They're just little, uh, you know, meal prep meals that I order from a meal prep company from ours. You can order them from anybody. And, and what's I the, wrap them in a towel. can you just mention the name of your meal prep company for people who are uh, interested in checking diets. it out? Okay, yeah. easy. You can go to stanefforting.com or theverticaldiet.com and you can uh, you can order meals nationwide delivered to your door. Um, but I'll, I'll just take, I used to make my own. I'd make bone uh, monster mash at home and I'd put it in Tupperwares and I'd freeze them the night before. And the next morning when I got up to get on the plane, I would take as many of those as I needed and I would put them in my bag and they'll stay frozen or stay cold for you know the day. And then I always stay at a place with a microwave and a fridge or a little kitchenette, like an extended stay or one of those kind of mm -hmm. hometown suites or something like that. And so I've got all my food for the whole weekend. I wake up the next morning and say, I've got a seminar and it's from nine to five. I eat breakfast. I, I heat up two meals to put into two thermoses and I head off to the seminar and I've got, you know, my meals and I don't have to worry about anything until dinner. And, you know, busy professionals can do that. I get a lot of uh, folks that are police, fire, and ambulance, uh, real estate agents, you know, working out of the trunk of their car all day. Uh, it's a great way to get through an entire day. Just, I leave the house with two thermos, two 24 ounce thermos with whatever I want or need to eat that day. Uh, meal prepping, the single most important thing you can do. And that just was a way to accommodate uh, me from having not to carry around, you know, old, cold Tupperware food. Second yeah. on that list, after meal prepping is um, tracking that which gets measured gets improved weigh yourself daily now understand you have to educate people about this because your weight will fluctuate you can't your whole day can't be determined uh, you know your emotion for the day can't be determined because you wake up in the morning and you've got two pounds of extra water on you and you think you've gained fat <laughs> Uh, so you have to weigh daily and take the average for the week and then look at those averages week over week at the end of the month to see if you're increasing or decreasing in weight as suspected. In the absence of some measurements, um, you know, you're just not going to be able to stay, uh, stay on task uh, if you're not you know, weighing in. Uh, and that kind of gets you to your third piece. And I, and I have all my clients send me pictures of their meals, their morning weight, their hours of sleep on a daily basis. So I have that information if they're my client. Um, and you can track those yourself. I, I haven't competed in seven years and I still have a sheet, a, a spreadsheet that I print out. It's got the days of the month across the top and the left-hand column, I've got a list of things that I wanna make sure I do every day. Hours of sleep, morning weight, 10 minute walks, how many meals I eat, uh, whether I'm taking vitamin D or magnesium or anything that, that's, that you're supposed to do on a daily basis. And I, it's just a compliance sheet and I can take a glance at it at any time and recognize whether or not I'm, I've optimized everything I need to do to make to reach achieve whatever goal that I have at the time. So I ask my clients to do the same. Third on that list is a coach. 
everybody should have a coach. Even 20 years into competing, I was hiring and working with great coaches. Uh, you know, Flex Wheeler, I, I went down to Sacramento and trained with him, or San Francisco, or um, I'm sorry, San Jose, and trained with him. Uh, Mark Bell out in Sacramento, Eddie Cohn out in Chicago, uh, Charles Glass down in LA. You know, I've worked with a lot of great coaches over the years. I've learned something from all of them. Uh, but a great coach or, you know, uh, a spouse that's very supportive or a training partner that's consistent with common goals, not the one that's like, oh, you can have just one piece of cake, yeah, you know? <laughs> and you can, but you don't need people around sabotaging you all the time when you shouldn't, you mm -hmm. know? And, and maybe only half a piece, okay? <laughs> I, I'm not suggesting that you can't have a piece of cake. I'm just saying that, that you've got people constantly uh, around you that aren't supporting your goals, distracting you, uh, or encouraging you to do something so that they don't feel bad. <laughs> yeah, defeats the whole purpose <laughs> of the accountability. Yeah. So those are the top three. Get a coach. Uh, it doesn't hurt. Your compliance uh, greatly improves as a result. Um, I think if, if everybody, you know, implemented those three things, meal prepping, daily tracking, and having a, a coach or someone in their corner helping them through this process, uh, they'd be, and then utilizing some of those other things that we mentioned, the high satiety foods, the higher protein, uh, just th those kinds of things. At the end of the day, you know, we don't have a lot of tools in our toolbox. It's hard. You're going to be in a deficit to lose weight. And so you're going to be hungry. It's just trying to mitigate the degree of hunger. And willpower is not a good way to get through this battle. Psychologically speaking, it, it's, it's not a winning strategy. You know, I'm just, I just don't have enough willpower. I'm just not disciplined. Uh, you, you just need to utilize, you need to have some strate strategies to help uh, reduce the amount of willpower you need. And that, that was, again, was the high protein, high satiety foods, you know, support group, all of that, because you, you, you can't do it alone and you can't, you know, be hungry all the time or, or exhausted and poor energy. And I'll throw one more thing in here in terms of exhausted and poor energy. And we talked about people thinking they had to go out and run five miles a day in order to lose weight and uh, how ineffective that was and, and, and not sustainable. More exercise is not equal more weight loss. It can also cause what we call compensation. If you go out and try and crush yourself to lose weight in this whole exchange of calorie, you know, exchange working out for donuts or whatever the, the, the method may be, those people end up getting tired and they're coming home and they sit more and they eat more. Their appetite yeah. actually increases and their non-exercise activity thermogenesis decreases. And, and so that's a, that's a bad way to look at uh, a bad strategy for weight loss. I completely agree. I really like to find that minimum effective dose and under, you know, understand more is not necessarily better. No. Um, you know, depending on the person and what they're doing, their goals, you know, obviously, uh, you know, if you're training for a specific event, it's much different, but for the general person, just who wants to feel better, look better, drop a few pounds, build, build some muscle, improve their body composition. Uh, yeah, these are really dynamite tips and, and strategies. So thank you for sharing all this, Stan. Thanks for coming on the show today. In closing, where can people go to, to learn more about your work? Uh, I'm going to put some links in the show notes, but if you don't want to just verbally mention, you know, social yeah. media, website. Everything's at Stan Efforting. My website, stanefforting.com. My Instagram is at Stan Efforting. I've got some great rants on YouTube under Stan Efforting as well, where I talk about all of these things, obesity and, and uh, a host of other uh, topics. Uh, and that's pretty much it. You can find me everywhere in the 
critical diet that we discussed today. I do have an ebook. It's over 200 pages uh, in, uh, on my website at stanefferdingu.com that can be downloaded. And the Amazing. book, the vertical diet book, I got a copy right here, shameless plug. The vertical diet book was the number one new release in diet books on Amazon for the four weeks it was in the category. And now it's, uh, it's in Barnes and Noble and on Amazon as well. If you want to get the book. Incredible. I definitely recommend it for anyone listening in and, uh, appreciate you coming on Stan. Thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you found it helpful, please share it along to anyone else you believe it can serve. You can submit your own question to be answered on the show by going to ryankennedyhealth.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review for the show. Your feedback helps to support me on my mission to positively impact as many people as possible with this information. Please note the information depicted in this episode is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine.